0: So what kind of a Christmas are you expecting this year? What is your dream of Christmas? What are your hopes for Christmas? What kind of day are you expecting to have? A family gathering without a family fighting? That would be a nice dream for Christmas, wouldn't it? When children write their letters to Santa Claus, they are given the opportunity to hope, given the opportunity a little bit to dream. My four-year-old came home from preschool with a list of everything she wants from Santa. She asked for a shovel, end of list. I'm sleeping with one eye open from now on. My seven-year-old's working uh, Santa letter is one part wish list, one part compilation of his little sister's transgressions. Yeah. Adults even get into the letters to Santa. Dear Santa, just get my kids to flush the toilet. (laughs) There is a range of needs and dreams that we see in letters to Santa. Some of them are heartbreaking. I have been a very good boy this year. I would like to have a Paw Patrol fan, Thomas and Percy train, toy tree, and a toy crane with remote control. This has been a very tough year. I lost my daddy and my grandpa, and my mommy is having a rough time. Maybe, gosh, you can send her some happiness. Thank you, four-year-old Aiden. Dear Santa, I want other kids to be nice to each other, including me. And to have a talent and be independent and strong, brave, smart, and designed for greatness. And to be a leader, healthy, cool, funny human beings. Merry Christmas. Oh, holy night, it's accurate, isn't it? We all struggle... with varying degrees with self-esteem, as Cameron so well expresses. All of this dreaming comes under the umbrella heading of hoping. Hope is the belief that the future can be better than the present. On Aaron Gruel's first day of uh, high school as an English teacher, she faced 150 incoming freshmen. Each one of those freshmen were, quote, at risk. Most of these kids statistically would fail. Their young lives were already marked by violence and poverty and very low expectations. These students, she wrote knew nearly every four-letter word except hope. So she took upon herself a task, not just to teach grammar and literature, but to instill within those students hope. In four years, every one of her students graduated high school. In four more years, half of those students graduated from a college. She is an example of a truth, that for students to succeed, it takes a lot more than following an academic curriculum. It takes a lot more than students to pass some kind of an academic measurement test. For students to succeed, is it not important for our education system to teach what is called the whole child? To touch the emotions of that child, not just the intellect of that child. Well, her story was written in a book that was called The Freedom Writer's Diary. It became a New York Times bestseller. 2007, it became a movie starring Hilary Swank in that key role. Studies show that students will get higher GPAs when they have hope. Students who are given hope are more likely to graduate than those who do not. Dr. Chan Hellman is a professor of social work at OU, University of Oklahoma. He's also the director of that uh, university's Hope Research Center. And this is what he says, in the university setting, what we found very consistently is that your hope scores are a better predictor of your performance than the ACT, SAT, or high school GPA. Maybe we ought to spend at least as much time giving our students hope than anything else. Wow, that's quite a statement to be made. More foretelling than all these other tests that we seem to put so much stock in. Hopeful athletes perform better on the field. They bounce back more from injuries when they're hopeful. They're better able to to adjust when situations change, even in their sport. In one study of the elderly, and I'm becoming more and more interested in these studies of the elderly, those who said that they felt hopeless were twice as likely to die during that time frame of the follow-up study than those who were saying that they felt hopeful scientists had discovered that there is a uh, there are deaths of despair deaths of despair are are things like dying by suicide uh, illnesses brought on by alcoholism uh, opioid overdoses And the scientists are discovering that these deaths of despair have shown in the last 10 years an increase, not across the board, but in white people who are less educated. So scientists are studying this. What in the world is going on? There's a husband and wife team of, econom- of e- economists, Ann Case and Angus Deaton. They won the 2015 uh, Nobel Prize for Economics, and they wrote about this in their book, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. And they're not shy about naming the cause of this uh, downturn. What they say is that the collapse of the very steady And decently paid manufacturing jobs. And along with those steady and decently paid manufacturing jobs comes pride and a sense of meaning and a sense of purpose for that uh, working class life. And they are saying that the, the decline in those jobs is what's causing this issue of deaths of despair. I quote from their book, destroy work and in the end, Working-class life cannot survive. It is the loss of meaning, of dignity, of pride, and of self-respect that comes with the loss of marriage and of community that brings on despair. Not just or even primarily the loss of money. One thing about hope is that for there to be hope, there has to be hopelessness. You really don't need hope unless there's also despair. Hope requires something bad to have happened. And so if you're feeling hopeless and if you're experiencing something in your life today that causes you despair, I guess the good thing about that is that's the only way you're ever going to have hope. You don't need hope if everything is going well. So if something's going bad in your life, well, you're just a candidate for hope. And I think we all are to some degree. There are two passages of Scripture that I want to, to which I want to draw your attention. The wisdom writer of Proverbs, for surely there is a future, and your hope will not be cut off. Some of us feel like there's just no hope for the future, and today is all we have. It's not going to get any better. And the writer expresses our sentiments so very well. And the writer of the psalm says, for the needy are not permanently ignored. Boy. Psalms was written, you know, 4,000 years ago. Forgetting and ignoring the poor was a problem then as it is now. And the hopes of the oppressed are not forever dashed. Both of these passages speak of something negative, something bad, something discouraging. If you find yourself in that situation, then you are a candidate for hope. And without that hope for something better, we can really get stuck and sink into a, a funk of, of a emotional and physical just yuckiness. And it's very hard to get out. When Dr. Jerome Grumman diagnosed patients with serious diseases, this Harvard uh, med school professor uh, discovered that all of these cases were looking, all these individuals were looking for a sense of genuine hope. And indeed, he said, that hope was as important to them as anything that he might describe as a physician. He wrote a book called The Anatomy of Hope. And he says, I think hope has been and is always and always will be the heart of medicine and healing. We cannot live without hope. And even in the midst of all the great scientific and technological advances in medicine, he says we still come back to this profound human need to believe that there is a possibility to reach a future that is better than the one in the present. So, hope is a journey that begins with despair. If you're in that desperate situation, then you are a candidate for hope. There are three areas, basically, primarily, in which despair comes. One of those is health, it has to be one of the most vulnerable areas uh, of despair to attack. Personally, my lung issues hit me about 20, 25 years ago. And I did, oh gosh, I did several cat scans and pet scans. They threw in a couple of dog scans in there with it. I love all these animal names for these. I'm sure they, I know they stand for something. It's very complex. But all of those scans that I went through for about a year, Denise and I would go to those, and, and they, they came back with the possibility of lung ca- cancer and uh, that's just wonderful news to have, but it was indefinite. They, they couldn't really decide, and so they did a biopsy of my lung, and that was even inconclusive. So, I I was pretty much in despair. This is when Denise, Denise and I were at Fellowship Church, and it was a tough time, and I had a uh, had a a doctor friend uh, come to our home and put on our kitchen table all the results of all these tests over the last several months, and he went through one, each one, one by one, and tried to explain those to me, and then he concluded it by saying, Philip, worst case scenario, you have lung cancer, and even if you have lung cancer, uh, it could be fixed, And I said, well, how can you fix it? Well, we just take out your lung. Oh, well, that sounds great. (laughs) And so the the physicians, how good they were here, just couldn't figure out exactly what I had. So I went to Mayo, and they went through the battery of tests. And that's where they discovered celiac. And the bottom line from the Mayos was, well, you've got something. You're not dead yet, so it can't be that serious. They really didn't say that, but that's what I felt like they were saying. And uh, and that's been 20 25 years ago, and I'm not dead yet, so I think I'll I think I'll be all right. And then a good friend of mine who was a physician too, uh, uh, Dr. Eric Van Reesen, diagnosed me with COPD a few years ago, so that may be a part of it right there. Then I had two bouts with melanoma, and and uh, over the last five years and. Every time those things come, I just kind of sink. I I shouldn't. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be above all that, right? And it just kind of hits me, and I go through a moment of despair. A second area of despair that all of us face is work-related. Uh, when I lost my pastor's position at Fellowship in 2012, gosh, that was worse It seemed like then a possible lung cancer diagnosis. And 56 years old, and uh, there was no church going to hire a 56 year old. I didn't know what else to do since nobody would hire me. I just started another one. (laughs) So uh, that worked out pretty well. And uh, that was devastating. I, I, I will say that Denise and I did enjoy our leisurely Sunday mornings. And I was introduced, to really good television, CBS Sunday morning, it was so good. And I kind of hated to start a new church, (laughs) because I really did enjoy those Sunday mornings. But that was not sustainable, and so we we fixed something there. Uh, This week, Denise and I went out to dinner, and um, that's the picture that I had on Facebook of uh, my venison that I ate, it was so very good. And uh, I asked her of a time in our life that she felt like we were in really dark, deep despair. And I really thought she would say the lung cancer thing or that she would talk about losing my job. Those were pretty dark, but, uh, but she said, yeah, our marriage. Well, that choked, my, <laughs> choked on my venison there. And, I, and uh, so we talked a little bit about that. And for the first 10 years of our marriage, I was missing in action. Uh, I, I was a lot like this pastor, his first church, and he made a promise and a goal that he would visit all the people in his church until uh, before the end of the year. Well, it was a Sunday before Christmas, and he got up and apologized. He did, did not meet his goal. And so he said... Uh, but we've got a week left, and if there's anybody here that would like for me to come visit them, just raise your hand. And nobody raised their hand except one woman, or his wife. <laughs> and that's kind of the way I was for the first 10 years of our married life after I got out of school, out of seminary, and started pastoring. I was gone almost every night at a church meeting or visiting people in the church, and in those days, we had people sign guest cards, and if they were interested in becoming a member of the church, they'd indicate that. So I'd visit them throughout that week. So I, I wasn't home hardly any night of the week. We did keep our Monday night date night, though, so that, that's one positive check mark. But every other night, I, I was gone. I was missing in action. Even when the boys were born, I was pretty much gone for the first uh, couple years of their lives. And uh, she said that that was really hard. And one night, oh, gosh, it it really got to a head. And we were both stressed, and she was crying. And, yeah, she actually did cry. I didn't cry that night, so that's a surprise. (laughs) And she was crying just out of frustration with me and frustration with our relationship. And basically, she said, I just want to go home. And uh, she meant going back to Tyler. And I don't think she wanted to go home permanently, just for a while. She didn't. Uh, but she wanted to. That, that, that hurts. And uh, that was a very dark, dark period of despair in our marriage. So, if you ever had a thought that Denise and I had just no problem, uh, problem-free, that I'm just absolutely wonderful, <laughs> well, that b- bubble has burst, hasn't it? I, I, I have not been. I, We're both better now than we were. But the journey to hope with my health, with my job, and with my marriage relationship, we, we had in each of those areas deep despair. And I had to respond, and Denise had to respond, in each of those areas of pain and hurt with some hope to get through that. So hope is not just the belief that future can be better than the present. Hope, it also has along with it the belief that you have the power to make that happen. I just can't sit back and hope my health gets better and hope my marriage gets better and hope I can put food on the table. I have to do something to make it happen. It's not wishful thinking. It's setting a goal, and it's developing a strategy to improve that which is broken. Now, the first step for me, and I didn't immediately have this understanding in the early days of my ministry, but as I was introduced to Father Rohr and other mystics in Christianity and mystics in other faiths, I, I was drawn in. And one of those uh, contemplative guides for me is Thomas Merton. And he he said, the notion that God is absent is the fundamental illusion of the human condition. And in despair, I had at times the thought that God was absent. That the light of God had been extinguished. And what helped me uh, confront that illusion was the practice of meditation and contemplation and prayer. And what that did, it brought me out of the illusion of the absence of God, and it brought me into a realization of the permanent connection that I have with God, that I have a permanent place in God's heart, and that I was never going to fall out of that heart, that God was never absent. I knew all that in my head. But personally, it was through a contemplative life. And when I say a contemplative life, it's not just spending, you know, 15 minutes, an hour in meditation. It's being contemplative throughout your day is what Paul talks about praying without ceasing. It's walking in an awareness. And that helped me so much. And it also, it was kind of weird, it brought me into a place where I could face my own desperation without judging myself. I embraced my desperation and my pain and my fear and without judging myself. And uh, it put me in touch with that God so very much. That God who is in me and that God who is in you is described by Paul. May the God of hope fill you with joy, all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. I draw your attention to that phrase, may the God of hope. That means that the hope that God possesses. The Greek word for hope is elpis, E-L-P-I-S. That was the name of the Greek spirit the Greek spirit of hope, and in Greek mythology, Elpis was put into a jar, along with all these negative things like suffering and disease and pain and dying. And then in the Greek mythology world, that jar was open, and all of these negative, horrible things were let out of the jar, and so the human race is now uh, just swarmed with and attacked by all this negative stuff, but hope was kept in the jar so that you, the human race had no hope. It was still stuck in the jar. And so Paul says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy so that you may overflow. And that word overflow is the, literally it's the idea of cramming a jar full of stuff. And I just wonder if Paul had in his mind that Greek mythology that all this hope has been crammed into this jar. These are marshmallows, just little puffs of hope. And all this hope has been crammed so that more hope can get into the jar. And you all carry within your heart this jar of hope, and it's just crammed full until nothing more can get into it. And it's overflowing now. And for years, the jar has been open and all this negative stuff you've experienced. And somebody's opened a jar in your life and has poured all this crap all over you. And you're saying, okay, where's the hope? And Paul is saying, here, here's your jar. It's just overflowing with marshmallow hope. (laughs) It's soft and it's tender and it's yummy, have some hope. Just let your life overflow with that hope. So what I want us to do as we close today, I want us to name your desperation. It's a health thing, it's a relationship thing, it's a, uh, a personal thing and in, in, uh, a career thing name it, if we don't face it, we can't fix it. The second thing I want us to do is spend some time in prayer. That's uh, the practice that I had had until I was introduced to contemplation. And the prayer, contemplation didn't eradicate prayer, it changed my prayer life. So that my prayer became less asking God for things, it still includes that, but my prayer life became just sitting in the presence and reflecting upon God. And when I'm in contemplation and meditation, it allows me to do what John the Baptist talks about, recorded by Mark and Matthew, to repent. Now, you and I think of repent as being sorry for your sin. That's not what it means at all. Repent means to think beyond yourself. That's literally what the Greek word means. So when I'm in a meditative or contemplative mode, I have this ability to think beyond myself. I face my fear, my anxiety, but I can think beyond my fear. I think beyond my desperation. And I see acceptance and affirmation and and love, which leads to hope, and then know that there are steps that you can take out of your desperation, and there are steps that you can take to help others out of their desperation. Take a look at this video to see how we can help others, and we'll close. You have the opportunity to take steps to move yourself from your desperate situation to hope. But we also have the opportunity, and this is where community and family comes in. We have the opportunity to help others move from their desperation to hope by choosing love, by being kind. See, I could not have moved from desperation to hope without some people in my life stepping in. And painting a picture for me of a better future. I want us to be that for each other. And I want us to be a source of hope for one another. Let's do that. All right. God help us. Speak to us of moments of hope. Help us to be kind. Because we have no idea. No idea what people are going through. In Christ's name, amen.